This is the 966 episode 109. Hello, Richard Wilson. Hey, we, again, we left we left gold on the cutting room floor as you were talking about your kids' preschool. <laughs> we sure did. Uh, when you said we should have been recording, I was thinking we should not have been recording, <laughs> but it was a good time to start recording and start talking about the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and everything else going on there. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. Uh, I'm good. It's a pretty day and... It's a pretty day. Pretty out there, too. Yep, it's pretty out here. Got the sun out. Some spring weather, it feels like, even though it's heat of the fall. I've got my fall beard going on, which I'll be (laughs) cutting today. So um, this will be a one episode one off on the beard. So enjoy for all the viewers. Um, (laughs) And Richard, we have a very, very awesome, excellent conversation coming up with Mohammed Ghazi and Abdulhadi Alzuz. AZ, he goes by. They're from AZ Aerials. They are drone aerial experts and video production artists with drones. And they're doing so much work around Saudi Arabia for government ministries, for the private sector, for companies. And as I note in the intro to that conversation, if you have seen any promotional video for Saudi Arabia or any Saudi organization, it's very likely that those organizations are using their drone aerial footage. It is insane what they're doing. And we will have some of their aerial footage in our B-roll this week. Just an awesome conversation. I uh, I can't remember any duds in terms of episodes, except maybe ones you and I did. You know, we were flat or we were wrong or just stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I guess if you put together a best of, this is just awesome. These guys were so much fun. They're doing some interesting stuff. They're sort of quintessential new Saudi in terms of young guys doing uh, really interesting, uh, non-traditional things in new space. And and then, like I said, on top of that, we just love the conversation. These are really, really nice, engaging, uh, fun guys. So it was this was a terrific one. It just is a perfect fit in every way. And if you think about it, it's cool because both of these guys are Saudi um, but they grew up almost exclusively in the United States of America. And so you'll hear it in their English. They sound fully American, uh, but they're Saudis and they are now living in Saudi Arabia. And it's just, you know, we've met hundreds, maybe even thousands, Richard, between us, uh, young Saudi students that have studied from Saudi Arabia in the United States and then have gone back. And, you know, that's a huge resource for the kingdom because these Saudis were educated here and brought back culture and ideas and brought with them here to the United States culture and ideas. And this is an interesting angle on this. These guys exclusively grew up in the United States and are now back in Saudi Arabia um, running a business. And it's and the business is super cool. So uh, it's just awesome, man. Yeah, absolutely. And they both started, you know, sort of on their journey and, you know, mastering drone skills and that sort of thing, both started in the U.S. And this is a great conversation. I really hope you can listen to it. And and if you can listen to it, excellent. But, you know, we're hoping to jam in a bunch of great video, too, if you get to see it on the on the YouTube channel. Indeed. And we have uh, some good feedback from the last few weeks. We have gone light on reading the feedback because our, our episodes have been longer we wanted to kind of get right into it but there's two that i want to read here very quickly for our listeners and viewers we really do appreciate it when you guys reach out with comments and ideas and uh just feedback on our sec our segments and everything else it really is great we just love seeing it this one is from turkey alotabi 79 7697 on youtube 
Thank you, Lucian and Richard, for the wonderful podcast. I love these topics. I was hoping that you would host people from Sammy to clarify some details on the topic of localization. I also hope that you would host people from the General Authority for Defense Development, GAD, and talk about the authority's strategy in R&D. Yeah, thank you, Turkey Alatebi. That was a great comment. We really appreciate that. Nice words there. Um, yeah, I think we will probably end up doing more on Sammy Gammy following Richard's one big thing from last week. Um, and then we have the World Defense Show coming up. So yeah, thank you for that comment. Absolutely. We'll stay on it. And we're always open. Uh, we've actually invited Gammy. Uh, no bounce yet. Um, but you know, yeah, we'd love to have them on. Indeed. This one from our boy Trimax. We haven't read it. Trimax is a uh, avid listener and watcher on YouTube. Uh, we love reading his comments because they're so insightful. Um, he says, some news, as you know, Hyundai Motors and PIF are signing an agreement later today to establish a new car assembly plant in Saudi Arabia, latest part of the country's ambitions to develop an autos cluster. Did we just tease maybe some info on a one big thing there on accident? <laughs> I had put this in before I knew. And then he said, at 1050, I laughed far too hard at that's not just a local uh, local Saudi newspaper in English saying everything is going great. Yes. <laughs> so thank you, Trimax. <laughs> nice to hear you. He also says you should bring back Faisal Durrani, someone else who can discuss real estate. Faisal Durrani is our real estate guru. He may not allow us to claim him as ours, but we have laid claim to him as our Saudi real estate guru. We love having him on. He's been on at least three times so far, I think. And yeah, we should have him back on in the next few months, Richard, because he there's a lot going on in uh, Saudi Arabia's real estate market. Yeah, he's, projects, all that stuff. So he's definitely in the rotation, and we try and time time his his appearances with uh, Night Frank uh, surveys and and publications, which tend to be really exhaustive and extraordinarily helpful document. So yes, he is definitely in the rotation. Yep. I met a colleague of his, uh, Andy Love in Dubai, I guess a few weeks ago, super cool dude. So mm -hmm. I think they got a really awesome company going on there and a really good presence in the region. So yeah, we'll have him back on at some point soon. We also love to discuss in the real estate sector as everyone knows, because it connects to everything. So Okay. And if you, last thing, if you have not done so, rate us and review us wherever you're getting this podcast, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, everywhere, anywhere you can do it. It helps us. We love seeing it. And any comments you want to send to us, just send them. And uh, we love seeing them. So, yep. Richard, let's get to it. What is your one big thing this week? Well, at, you know, typically, actually, we usually coordinate a little more than we did today. Mm -hmm. You know, we both <laughs> we went on this morning. What's your one big thing? And usually this is done two days or whatever in advance. So you're right. That was a teaser. My one big thing is the automotive industry. And but before we get into that, there's two there's two things I need help with. One is one is actually kind of cool because as we get into this, like the military industrialization, one big thing I did last week, we had done segments before. So I'm doing I'm looking at the automotive manufacturing sector for my one big thing this week. This harks back to a one big thing I did in November 2021. So we actually have we're getting some longitudinal, you know. Uh, timeline coverage now in the 966. The other thing is, is and I mentioned it, and it, it, it keeps coming back up, like the regional HQ, like the uh, like the military industrialization. There's, there's, we we have to come up with a phrase. We don't have to do anything, but it'd be good if we came up with a phrase along the lines of, "Oh, I guess this is going to happen," because so many of the things we talk about were speculative or you know just high in the sky or, you know, they were a launch. 
and now they're coming to fruition or they're becoming much more real. And I don't know what the appropriate phrase is. I think I said it last week, something like, oh, this is really going to happen. Um, but this is sort of like my one big thing this week, which is a national autom- I mean, auto- an automotive industry. So <clears throat> let me just take you back to November 2020. Let's go back in the, in the time-lapse machine. No- November 2021. I did a piece on the automotive industry. In that, I said, you know, pointed out, all right, this is under the National Industrial Development Logistics Program. And we talked about how they've wanted to develop an automotive industry for decades, you know, for all the reasons we know, you know, there's a huge market, uh, it's a significant uh, employer, uh, it transfers technology, you know, promotes manufacturing, all these, you know, beneficial things. Um so let me just quote what I said from there. Saudi Arabia allocated land for the construction of a vehicle assembly plant in April 2019 with capacity to produce between 10,000 and 30,000 cars annually and aiming to re- reach a steady production volume of 110,000 to 150,000 by 2026. All right. This was in Jubail <clears throat> out in the east on the, on the Gulf side of Saudi Arabia. And uh, it was a joint venture between the Saudi National Automobile Manufacturing Company, SNAM, and South Korean company, Sanyong. Uh, so in that particular part of the, the one big thing closes, despite further outreach, Saudi Arabia has not secured a major manufacturer by the goal of 2020. An industry source familiar with ongoing Toyota talk said, quote, nobody would say no, full stop, but they politely conveyed they're not interested, unquote. All right, so... <clears throat> Fast forward to today. Fast forward to the few last few months. We and I'll do this in in sort of try and do it in chronological order. So SNAM, the Saudi uh, National Automotive uh, Manufacturing Company, um, was actually established in 2013. They had this this JV with Sanyong, uh, but nothing had gone forward. They had the plot out of Jubail. Nothing had gone forward. Um, however. Just recently, um, SNAM, as part of a, a very large South Korean delegation into Saudi Arabia, it just happened, where any number, billions and billions of dollars of MOUs were signed. Part of that was that uh, essentially renewed this SNAM Jubail manufacturing capability. So Sanyong is now KG Mobility. And uh, as part of this delegation, they are signing on to, to uh, move this forward and essentially establish, and this would be internal combustion engines for these vehicles, essentially uh, establish a truly Saudi um, manufacturing capability out on the, the East Coast at the Jubail Economic uh, Complex. So that's one thing, and that was just announced. And I should say, um, you know, so that's very recent in terms of getting a lot of energy. We know, and again, we're talking about the recent nature of this. This just happened in October. In September, as we know, Lucid, U.S.-based Lucid Motors signed agreements to build a production factory in Kingdom with an annual capacity of 155,000 zero-emission electric vehicles. Um, this is on the ground in Kingdom Bell Economic City. That manufacturing facility has, you know, has been launched. Um, so that's two, uh, going back in June, again, this summer, SEER, C-E-E-R, SEER is a joint venture between the public investment fund 
and Foxconn. And this is essentially to, um, in, to, to produce electric vehicles, design, manufacture, and sell a range of vehicles, uh, including sedans and sports utility vehicles. Um, so, so Sierra's moving along. These will be EVs. Uh, just in the last two weeks, October 2023, Hyundai, third largest automaker uh, worldwide in terms of sales volume, uh, has made an agreement with the PIF. Uh, PIF will hold 70% stake in a new joint venture with Hyundai, uh, having the remaining 30% strategic technology partner to support and develop a new manufacturing plant. The total investment of the project is estimated to exceed $500 million. It will join Lucid at the King of Bella Economic City. So in November uh, 2021, we're talking about nothing's happened in the automotive industry. Today, two years later, right, essentially, uh, it's October 2023, we're looking at four ongoing viable entities, SNAM with a, with a, a South Korean partner, SEER with Foxconn, uh, Lucid, obviously, with a U.S. partner, and now Hyundai. Um, all these things are sort of now moving in place. So, so you know, to return to the earlier conversation about, oh, this is really happening. This is another example of, oh, this is really happening. Now, I'm loath sometimes to throw out goals. Um, you know, the Saudi Arabia wants to build 300,000, be able to build 300,000 vehicles by 2030. We don't know if they'll be, you know, be at that point. Um, and again, as we've, we've mentioned many times before, it doesn't matter if they hit that exact number. If they're developing a, an automotive manufacturing ecosystem, that's what matters. Um, and in all of these things, you know, along with coming, and, and you can see we've talked about the game plan, you know, that Hyundai uh, motor company is a 70-30 split. Uh, Lucid got terrific incentives, incentives $3.4 billion worth, I think, in terms of incentives to come. Obviously, Sear, same thing. Uh, you know, the PIF in Saudi Arabia is, is making it very attractive for people to come. And for them, and you know, it's worth the trade-off because they want the technology, they want the manufacturing capability, um, and they want the jobs. So uh, again, this is sort of an update like we did with the military industrialization program of where Saudi Arabia is now. And in just over the course of two years, it made tremendous leaps, not only in the internal combustion engine area, but in EVs. And you see all sorts of ancillary groups sort of, uh, you know, coming in in support of the automotive manufacturing sector. For example, the um, the uh, Tassaru, which is National Automotive and Mobility Investment Company, is dedicated to localizing automotive supply chains. Um, the Saudi PIF and uh, Saudi Electricity Company have announced the electric vehicle infrastructure company, which plans to install over 5,000 electric car fast chargers. Transport General Authority has a vital role in all this in terms of using data and technology. Um, just today, right before we went on, there was an announcement of a PIF tie-up with Pirelli Tires to do a $550 million uh, tire plant in, in Saudi Arabia. So you see different parts of this all coming together to try and build out a comprehensive and fully realized automotive ecosystem. Uh, and again, uh, 
it's like so many things, you know, you don't really see results sometimes until you're inside the five yard line and you're starting to see a really promising, uh, the potential for actually realizing this automotive center that, that Saudi Arabia literally has chased for decades, pray for decades. And here we are in overcast of two years, seeing real MOUs, real plants being put on the ground, real commitments. So it's an exciting time in that sector. Yeah, I, th- I think dating back to, we, we talked about this in a previous episode, Richard, <laughs> yeah. the dating back to the Gazelle, yeah, the, uh, which the I'm 80s. looking a photo at right now. Yeah, this, well, this is a 2010 uh, King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz University. Oh, sorry, King Saud University. Um, mock-up. Mock-up. Yeah, they did build a prototype, it looks like, um, on did. a Mercedes-Benz platform. We talked about that as well. But anyway, this is a really good one big thing because I really like the analogy you used. This has taken a long time to get together. It's long been a goal for Saudi Arabia to do this. And you've really seen it snowball in the previous, you know, weeks and months even um, to now become sort of, you know, within the five yard line and all of these things are happening now. You mentioned at the very end there, Tassaru Mobility Investments, it's PIF, a new sort of investment company they have. I mean, and it's not just their investments into cars, you're seeing things like, uh, there's just an IPO for a rent a car rental firm Lumi popping 30% in a stock market debut. You're seeing the entire ecosystem kind of build out. You mentioned Sear being built, uh, developed now. Lucid's building a plant in Cake right now. You've mentioned that. Hyundai was the big news this week. Also Pirelli. There was also news over the last six or eight months that sort of teased what was going on here. The kingdom signed a $5.6 billion deal with a Chinese EV pump company called Human Horizons that with the Ministry of Investment, an investment in an EV startup, Praveg Dynamics, to set up a manufacturing plant in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Renault-backed EV startup Bianca, which signed a preliminary Saudi investment deal. Uh, Saudi Arabia uh, also, through Saudi Aramco, took a share in Renault and Geely's internal combustion engine unit. So you... So you're just, I'm just kind of echoing your point. You have these investments. It's not just Lucid and let's come build a car here and then Lucid will be the car. It's like you're building the whole industry and you're building, you're inviting competitors to come in. You're investing in competitors abroad. You're doing all these things to sort of basically put every piece in place so that the industry can be founded and have a foundation and then take off from there. And it and this FII in the last week, Richard, probably had half of these headlines that we read because all of these things were in the work for a while and they used this opportunity to get these out the door. And it's and it obviously because it maximizes their amplification of of the news when you're doing it from this event. And it's pretty cool to see this now take off. And just the other thing that I will add, it's a sort of a bit that I use when I visit over there, but people ask me what I think of Lucid when I'm in Saudi Arabia. And I'm and I always say Actually, my default on this is to ask Saudis because Saudis are very, very into their cars. Typically, they're very sophisticated car owners. They were way ahead on things like the Toyota Land Cruiser, which basically lasts forever. They knew it was a well-built car before it was common knowledge it was a well-built car. So I'm always turning the question around to Saudis saying, what do you think of Lucid? If you like it, then I think (laughs) it might have a shot. Um, But this is a good one, Richard. And I think this is important to kind of stay on top of because we're obviously, like you said, on the five yard line, but they need to take the football into the end zone to continue the metaphor. And and that's where it's headed. So first and goal for Saudi. 
Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, we can even say that, I mean, they're not quite about ready to score, but they're, they're, they're over the mid, you know, they're over the 50 yard line and they're, they're headed, you know, they're putting together a nice drive to stick with the analogy. A couple of things <clears throat> you mentioned the FII. I actually think a lot of these, a lot of big news came out of this South Korea delegation. Yeah. 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 And it's fascinating. It's a huge, a very important delegation. And, you know, Saudi Arabia obviously is building, it has a significant economic ties with Asia and that includes China, India, South Korea. Uh, but you really see it building its book and its trade interaction and engagement with India and South Korea. Um, and, you know, from the U.S. perspective, particularly with South Korea, who is a very close U.S. ally, we got to like that. But um, I have a question for our listeners. So we mentioned the Gazelle, which is the first locally manufactured car in Saudi Arabia. It was made of carbon fiber. There was another one. It's called the Al Araba Signature Car Number 1. It was built in 2003 by the Al Araba company uh, and along with an Indian customizing and a modification design called DC design. Only five of these were made costing $270,000 each. I would, if any of our listeners or viewers knows where one is, talk about a, a rare automobile. And, and I've never seen a picture. I'll have to look it up now. An Al Araba signature car number one. I but, think I got it. I think I got one here. Al Araba one. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It actually looks kind of cool. This was this was two. Uh, what did you say this was? Two thousand two thousand three. I, I this certainly looks a lot more modern than the Gazelle. <laughs> the Gazelle was, was kind of clunky, wasn't it? It was a little clunky. There was there was a trend in I guess whenever that came out for things to be rounder in cars, which I really don't like. You know, like the looks I like agree. an egg kind of on the road. It looks um, it looks flabby. Yeah, it looks flabby. This looks cool. I'm sending this to you now. I'm sorry for all the listeners and viewers <laughs> are just listening to us send links back and forth. But you got to see this actually. And you know what? I'm oh, look pretty at this. Sure. You see it? Yeah, it's a two-seater. Oh, it's a sedan. Sedan. It looks cool. It's got a hard oh. top. Um, oh, look at the rear. Yeah, wow. the, the specs aren't too impressive, though. 215 horsepower, oh, top yeah. speed, 240. <laughs> I think, I think yeah. what they did was whatever this Indian customizing thing, they basically put a really terrific shell on a, on a uh, Mazda or something like that, but that is pretty. Kind of cool, I don't know, maybe bring the All Arab, All Araba one back. Um, yeah. You know, down the line. Well, and that'd be a good electric vehicle. So who uh, built this? We should get this guy on the said, podcast uh, and ask Al Araba him. company, Fauzi Ayub Sabri, and okay. an Indian customizing manufacturing. So, so uh, <laughs> anybody, somebody owns one of these. There's five mates, you know, somebody owns them. Um, you know, so it, 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 that would be fun to, that would be, that would be a real collector's edition. You know? I love, I love this sending the listeners and viewers out on a wild goose chase for a very <laughs> rare car that most probably have never seen before. But, uh, yeah, if anybody finds an owner of one of these five cars, we'll have a nine, six, six t-shirt made and we'll absolutely size a mug. You get the full merch package. Cause uh, we'd love to see this. And, so. a, and a flash drive. Isn't that all? <laughs> exactly. And a little pen and pad. Yep. You get the whole conference experience. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We spare no expense. That's what you get. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, really cool. My one big thing this week, Richard is 
Following on last week's one big thing that I did on Goldman Sachs's recent article on Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 reforms, this week was FII. Couldn't go this week, had a bit of a family issue here, so I didn't end up leaving on Monday. And privately with all the travel, uh, confidentially, I should say, with everyone listening, with all the travel I've been doing, it's kind of nice to get a little bit of a break. But I did miss FII this year, and I think a lot was coming out of it this year. I mean, it always does. We just mentioned that. But Saudi Arabia's finance minister, Mohammed Al-Jadan, spoke at FII this week, and I wanted to discuss what he said on the Saudi economy because it's sort of tied to last week and also this year, next year, even up to 2030 and beyond, kind of important for investor confidence. So just wanted to dive into that. He said that Saudi Arabia's non-oil GDP is expected to grow by around 6% this year in 2023, adding that he expected it would continue to be healthy beyond this year. Non-oil activities surged 6.1% in the second quarter of this year, driven by domestic demand. That was a figure we got a few weeks ago. That vastly outperformed overall growth for the Saudi economy, which is set to slow this year amid crude production cuts and lower prices. So the minister's comments confirmed basically that the figure we saw in the second quarter of this year will be roughly the average for the entire year, which is consistent and good. And he, indeed, he said uh, as much not just for this year, but consistently going forward, he said at FII, quote, we are likely to continue to see growth within that range in the foreseeable future, possibly to 2030 and beyond. So non-oil growth is solid and here to stay, the minister said, and will pull upward the kingdom's economic performance in the years to come, as we talked about last week in my one big thing. And in many other episodes before that, non-oil economic growth and non-oil economic strength is the most important thing for Vision 2030. It's what Vision 2030 really is all about. After a red hot year last year in 2022, in which Saudi Arabia posted a real GDP growth of 8.7%, best in the G20, and a non-oil GDP growth figure of 4.8%, the kingdom expects a real GDP growth in 2023 to grow by only 0.03% this year. This is compared to the previous forecast growth of 3.1%. As such, Saudi Arabia said it would have a budget deficit this year of 2% of GDP, compared with an earlier projection of a 0.4% surplus. So one thing at this juncture, and this is a point my wonderful co-host and I have talked about recently as well, what we're looking at now is whether Saudi Arabia will continue to invest and spend in Vision 2030's economic reforms, regardless of oil's price and output volumes. In this year's case, prices were lower and output was down. So the kingdom's balance sheet is reflecting that. If you're managing a household budget, you might be tempted to look at cutting spending or deviating away from your long-term strategy. But for Saudi Arabia, we think the smarter move is to continue full steam ahead with reforms. These are literally investments into a future economy that will pay off down the road. So it's interesting to hear what Al Jadon said next. Maybe he's a listener to this podcast. We would never presume that he is. But <laughs> Al Jadon confirmed that indeed Saudi Arabia is not just continuing with investments in economic diversification, but accelerating those plans to diversify its economy away from oil under Vision 2030, developing sectors such as tourism, industry, expand the private sector, and so on. The government, of course, expects this higher spending over the coming years to pay off, but it will tilt the kingdom into a fiscal deficit. That's something Saudi Arabia is very comfortable with, Al Jadon said. He said he was not worried about deficits and that Saudi Arabia's sovereign debt remained among the lowest in the G20 group of countries. Quote, our aim in the foreseeable future, Jadan said, is to accelerate our reforms. We are very aware of our fiscal space and our spending is within that. So taking a step back, I think this answers a lot of big, question, big picture questions about Saudi Arabia's economy and plans approaching 2030 and beyond. Ceteris paribus, of course, if you're a foreign investor looking at opportunities in Saudi Arabia, but 
you haven't entered the market yet, this is going to give you a little bit more confidence into what is coming as you see Vision 2030 cemented and and with a good foundation and, and you're wondering where it's going to go from here. You kind of know based on these comments. And in general, if you're doing business in Saudi Arabia, you know the government is going to embrace a little bit of short-term pain for some long-term game. I said Saudi Arabia, of course, because oil is still very much a factor for Saudi Arabia's economy until it isn't. But to see that Saudi Arabia is not flinching when prices go up or down and stays the course on its spending and economic plans is confidence-inspiring. Oil is currently hovering around where, Richard, 80s range, both WTI and Brent. It flirts with the high 80s. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's in the 80s range, has been for a few weeks. It topped off this year above 90 in September following steep cuts from Saudi Arabia and the OPEC Plus Group. One investment strategist at Standard Chartered PLC said this week that the company thinks oil prices can rise as markets adapt to the probability of conflict escalating in Israel and the region, with WTI likely to trade around $90 a barrel in the near term. So despite a higher oil price, of course, Saudi Arabia very much does not want that to happen, one would think, as it would put pressure downward on Vision 2030's momentum and spook investors. And I think that's why you have the crown prince embracing allies around the region and the world to work to contain and end the war as soon as possible. He spoke with President Biden this week. We're going to talk about that separately. But just to look into Saudi Arabia's economic vision to come in the next few years, the next decade or so. And I think uh, Al Jadon's uh, comments at the FI this week were, were gave us a, a pretty good look into that. Excellent one. Good one. And, you know, uh, Al Jadon is consistently one of the most um, lucid to the point, plain speaking, you know, representatives in Saudi Arabia. Whenever I, I get to hear him talk, he's really on the ball, very smart, knows his stuff, doesn't get cute, just says it, you know, says it like it is. Um, and we've talked, you alluded to it, and you, as you said, we, you know, and one of the things I think is impressive about what Saudi Arabia has done and has been doing <clears throat> is they've shown the ability to adapt. And we complimented and commended Saudi Arabia uh two years ago when they started introducing a very transparent budget. And they even, you know, in, in the September of last year and, and this year, they introduced sort of a pre-budget projection. So people, companies, investors, whatever, you know, could anticipate, could, could allocate, could do what was necessary and, and reliably understand what the government hopes to do. And we were really pleased in 2022 when there was just you know, just just fire hose of revenue from in, increased oil prices, uh, when Saudi Arabia said, "Okay, we're we're going to plan on uh, uh, we're actually planning on spending less next year, and we're going to have a, a something like a twenty twenty plus billion dollar surplus this year." We're not. We'll tell you what we're going to do with it. We're we're not sure what we're going to do with it right now. But it, it was it was a, uh, a a responsible, transparent, you know, really. Uh, Again, responsible approach. What and we've talked about what I like is that this year when revenues are down, they're going to be running a deficit that they have adapted. They're actually, you know, they had anticipated spending less this year on the budget, they're going to spend more. And that's because, you know, as we've said, you know, this is their moment. They need to keep it going. They need to need to keep pump, priming that pump. Um, so they're 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 being pretty light on their feet, which is just I think, again, commendable. The other thing is, you know, going back to the beginning, which is non-oil income, and you mentioned Division 2030, I think if you could do a 1A, 1B, 1C, 
into preserving 2030 and accomplishing 2030, I think 1A would have to be political and strategic stability. So, you know, that's sort of the must-have foundational need for Vision 2030 to succeed. 1B would be sustainable, reasonable oil revenue. And 1C is right here. 1C is the, your one big thing, non-oil income. Because, you know, you have one where you have to have a floor, two, you have to maintain that income, and three, this is where we want to go. And so they're all, they're all ones, uh, but, you know, it, it's, it, it, you know that, that non-oil income is right up there as in terms of priority in Vision 2030. So anyway, uh, again, that's a good one. And I'm always like when we can introduce, to, you know, uh, the finance minister into our discussions. That's a really good point about the 1A, B, C, because the C is sort of the goal, but you don't have that goal and you can't work toward it without A and B. Right. So like, you know, you, you can want 1C and only focus on 1C, but if you don't have 1A and 1B, you're just not going to get anywhere. And so, yeah, I think it's a great point. Yeah, I sort of call 1A essential, 1B the floor, and 1C the ceiling. Yep. Yeah. You know. So it's, it is cool to see that. It's cool to see this going in that direction. Um, and you just want 1A and 1B to continue forward as well. To <laughs> so keep we can get to 1C. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> if, you're, if you're a foreign investor, you're saying, how's 1C doing? And you know, if you're a Saudi government official, you're saying, I'm, I'm working on 1A and B and C at the same time. Thanks for asking about 1C, but there's two other things that are really important to me as well. <laughs> I know you don't care about them as much until it affects you, but that's what we're doing. So anyway, um, yeah. So Richard, what do you think? I think it's time to start talking about some drones. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited. These <laughs> guys Muhammad are great. Ghazi and Mo AZ, Mo AZ. These guys are so fun. And yeah, so it, what, no more preamble, just enjoy. We are speaking now with Mohammed Ghazi, Mo, and Abdul Hadi Azuz, who goes by AZ from the drone film company AZ Aerials, based in Riyadh. Chances are, if you've seen some of the impressive promotional videos from Saudi authorities and leading companies anywhere online, you might have caught a glimpse of some of Mohammed and AZ's work. Their clients include the Ministry of Tourism, Ministry of Sports, Saudia Airlines, Aramco, MDL Beast, the General Enter- Entertainment Authority, Riyadh Season. Visit Al Ola. This list could actually go on a lot longer than the podcast we have time for. Yeah, right. yeah. Netflix, Disney Netflix. Plus. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Mohammed and AZ also both grow up in the United States. We are excited to share your guys' stories and learn more about your work. Welcome on to the 966. Thank you guys Thanks. for having me. Yeah, great, great to be on. Uh, we've been waiting on the show, so we're very excited. Yeah, Mo, we, we started first, first started talking this summer, and I think we had you... A schedule and then you were often somewhere in scandinavia for two weeks where we couldn't, we couldn't uh, be found Sweden <laughs> for a couple of weeks yeah the, these shoots you know they come out of nowhere sometimes we have clients they call us on the same day they're like hey can you shoot tonight you know we never say no so well and this is better actually because just a little wait and we get az too so it's a it's a it's a it's a nice twofer so <laughs> There's so much to talk about. You guys are, I think you're going to be fascinating to our listeners and our viewers, but let's start, let's start with what you guys do. And and I could just say as, as AZ has on his LinkedIn, that you, you, you run the dopest kind of filming marketing company around. So I don't know how, how explanatory that is, but maybe you can tell us what you guys do in, in, uh, in Saudi. Yeah. So, so just real quick, you know, we do, it's, it's really broken down into filming, right? We do aerial filming. That's what we specialize in. Anything that is covered from the air 
Uh, but when I say that we do the dopest filming, I mean, our guys are some of the most talented people in Saudi Arabia. I'm half Saudi. Uh, Mo is Saudi. And, uh, you know, we grew up in the States. So that kind of gave us a different perspective of the way we look at things. Uh, it's a nice contrast between the creativity that happens in Saudi Arabia and the Saudi mindset with a little bit of flavor from what we do. So where we have a more, you know, dynamic maybe look to our filming or or we can offer a different type of, of uh, perspective uh, to a lot of those things. So a lot of people find that unique in, in the way and style that we film because a lot of people can fly drones, a lot of people can film, um, but, you know, we, we tend to be pretty unique in, in the way we do it. I actually, can you take us through a, a shoot, for example? So Lucian was re- uh, referencing Alula, but then you've done things all over. I can still remember uh, seeing one of yours from that. Uh, it was a big, huge sort of gala glitzy thing. Um, so, so for example, if you're on a shoot, what, what are you guys doing and what are you responsible for and how do you handle it? Yeah. So, so we get hired by either production companies, sometimes directly by the studios or direct by the client. Um, in those different people, sometimes there's different roles. So sometimes we are part of the creative team when it comes to creating a storyline or a storyboard. Uh, sometimes we'll go on a shoot and we'll just be directed by the creative director on sh- certain shots that he wants. So we get on set. Uh, we go through all the different sequences and sometimes we'll go on what's called a tech recce um, a couple of days prior to the shoot. That way we can kind of identify different locations and uh, how technically we're going to be doing this type of flying or, or shooting. Um, Mo has done a lot of the FPV stuff, you know, for us. And a lot of that is really technical flying, expect, especially when they expect us to go, to go through like tight gaps or multiple cars, as maybe you've seen in some of our videos where we actually go through car, multiple car doors. And we're talking about, you know, hyper cars that are worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. Yeah. Well, actually, Mo, let's talk about where you learned your skills. Cause when, I, I'm, I'm guessing you learned your skills at the at the Philadelphia Country Club. Is this yes? Is this true? <laughs> yes, yes. I actually started out there when I was still in high school, and it was right down the road from where I lived. And I was out there just, you know, when you when you're uh, on a golf course, it's an open space. You have a lot of uh, space to play with. I would take my drones out there, and I would just send them out there, you know. And I feel like that's really where I built most of my skills. Now, it's not always the same being on set in a lot of these tight places, these tight situations. There's more people. Uh, there's a lot more risk to it. But, hey, it's what we do. Well, let's stay with you for a minute and talk about you. You lived in the States. You were in, in the Northeast? Yes. Yes. So um, I was actually born in Jidam, Saudi, but I moved out to the States when I was six years old, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So um, I was out there from preschool up until I graduated from the University of Arts, where I got a bachelor's in filmmaking, film production and design. Yeah, as soon as I graduated, it was still Corona times, and I came back for a family visit. And um, I was so shocked because I hadn't been back to Saudi in 10 years at that point. So when I came back and I touched down, I left the airport. I was seeing a woman driving, which is something I've never seen. And... um, There were so many other things in the industry, uh, specifically the filmmaking industry, that really shocked me. And I decided uh, not to go back. And ever since, um, I've stayed here in Saudi. Yeah, you said when you went back, you didn't know what you were going to do. But then you saw what was going on, everything going on. Um, AZ, AZ, so you said you're half Saudi, half American. 
Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So my mom is actually she's Hispanic American, so she's uh, she's Mexican, and uh, you know my grandparents migrated from Mexico a long time ago, and uh, I was born actually in San Antonio, Texas, where my mom and and dad uh, met. They actually met in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when they were going to college. Uh, so they had me and my brother in the states, and then they moved back to Saudi Arabia when I was like one years old, and then uh, we lived there for like I said about ten years, and then we moved back to San Antonio where I went to, you know, the end of of uh, of elementary, middle school, high school, college, and and into the military. So uh, my oldest is in the army, and he's a captain in the army, and so and and uh, you you spent eight years in the army, and what's funny uh, is my my uh, my sister who's active service in Iraq and elsewhere for many years, but all, three of her kids uh, are in in the military, and and one of them actually is out uh, in Hawaii doing a little bit what you were doing. Can you tell us a little bit what you what you were doing with the U.S. Army? Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was, I was what's called a 15 Romeo. So I was an Apache crew chief. So I worked on the Apache helicopter. Uh, so basically we maintained the Apache helicopter and we crewed it, you know, for, for our air crews and stuff uh, to do pre-flight checks and do maintenance on them and stuff. So I did that in uh, Fort Hood, Texas. I did it in Korea for a year. I was in Kuwait, Afghanistan, Iraq. So I've been, I've been all over the place. <laughs> so how did you get from there to the, to, to Saudi? Okay, so so here's here's the story because this is what everybody asks, right? Like, what did you do to get from the states all the way back to Saudi Arabia? And this was when I was about thirty years old, right? Because I just got out of the army, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Uh, I ended up looking for jobs and stuff. I knew that there was going to be some contracting opportunities and things like that. Because originally I wanted to be a pilot, but they wanted me to sign for a couple more years, and and there was no commitment that they weren't going to commit to sending me to pilot school. So I was like, let me go ahead and get out and take my chances. And Boeing, uh, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with, uh, Boeing aircraft, they, uh, I got a contract on with them to, um, they just sold aircraft to Saudi Arabia, to the Apache helicopter. They sold about 70, I think 70 helicopters. And uh, they needed somebody, you know, on the crew, um, not necessarily Saudi, but they were quite pleasantly surprised that, that they found a half Saudi, half American was in the military and can speak Arabic and English. So, so they were, they're very happy to get me on board. And, and that's what brought me back to Saudi Arabia in 2013, 2014. Fascinating. Did you come up, did you bring family or you come on your own? I did. No, no, I brought, I brought family. And so I got, I got a wife and two kids. Uh, so um, I actually didn't, they, I didn't have any kids at that time. I was just newly married. Uh, and then when I first moved to Saudi Arabia, we had our, our first uh, daughter, uh, Shireen. And uh, and then uh, shortly after that, about a year and a half later, we had our, our first son, Haytham. So there they, we were all together and we were in the middle, by the way, you know, we weren't in Riyadh. We were in a place called Hafer al-Batan, which is four hours from Riyadh in the middle of nowhere at a military base, which was, you know, which was kind of new because it was it was culture shock coming from San Antonio to Hafer al-Batan. So. But, you know, the beauty is kids don't know any better. It's all a playground. <laughs> Nah, they didn't know any better. They loved it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when when did you get into drones? So it was at it was at that time. So, so let me let me kind of dial back a little bit. I I was always into RC stuff. So whether it was cars, I actually used to build RC helicopters and compete with them. Um, so I did a lot of three D three D competition with helicopters and stuff. We do these crazy maneuvers. It looks like a crazy dragonfly flying around, but but that's what gave me a really good skill of how to fly line of sight. Um, not under goggles, as we say. 
uh, I started flying FPV there in Hafobaden at our base. Um, I would buy the equipment from Kuwait, bring it with me uh, into Saudi Arabia, which they weren't selling at that point. They weren't, they didn't even really de- deal with drones, you know, in, in terms of recreational use. So I had to bring them from Kuwait. And then I would go on our base, our compound, which was secure. Nobody was going to bother me flying there. And I just, you know, flew and crashed a lot of drones at that time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Lucian, go ahead and tell the story of our drone experience in Saudi. <laughs> we we wanted to bring a drone in in like 2014, maybe late yeah. 2014, late, uh, early 2015. And it was... I mean, it was like a whole diplomatic incident just to get the paper. I mean, it was like, uh, and like guys walking with us at the airport, like inspecting the drone. Like it was a huge yeah. deal. And now what you, you guys are running a business on, on this, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, Mohammed, tell us about how you, like, can you tell us like what you felt when you first started flying drones and like what got you hooked? Well, here's the thing. My, my dad is a pilot for Saudi Airlines. So from my young age, I wanted to be a pilot. Right. And when I was younger, the closest thing I could get to flying was a drone when I was still in school. So being in the air is just another feeling, you know, um, when you send that drone out there and you just see the aerial perspective, it's a whole nother uh, bird's eye view that you can't really get with a camera on the ground. He must love what you're doing. Does it, what does he think about that? Yeah, he's he's pretty shocked that how far I've taken it. And he doesn't, he still doesn't, can't grasp how fast these FPV drones can go. AZ will tell you more about it technically, how fast they can go. But we have some drones that can go, how fast is it, AZ? Uh, yeah, so so we have drones that will reach 100 miles an hour. Well, so you've got a, wow. you've got a bigger, you got a big ass drone behind you, AZ. <laughs> yeah, this thing's got a 33, 33 inch blade span on it. So it's pretty large. Yeah. <laughs> is, that your, is that your biggest one? This is our biggest one, yeah. This is what's called a heavy lifter drone. So we uh, we can lift payloads upwards of like thirty five to forty pounds. Yeah. So so there's line of sight. You do a you do line of sight. Mo, you do the headset. I do the yeah. headset. I'm not good at line of sight. Like AZ is. We actually just came from Neom, and they didn't have um, a screen for us or anything, and we had to fly that big drone. And AZ <laughs> did it all line of sight, which to me is. And to any other pilot, it's just not doable. They would tell you, like, sorry, we can't do that. And AZ had this big drone in the air, just eyes locked in on it. And, yeah, we shot for two days out there. We just got back yesterday. So yeah. it it's there's two parts to this. First of all, and I, what I love about this was, and, and you know, Mo, you, you've talked about it. AZ. Obviously, you've been there for a, a while. Is None of these opportunities existed. What? five years ago what honestly yeah you know in 2013 it was never it was never i would i I thought i'd have been working on helicopters till i retired you know let me put it that way we we were doing it as a recreational thing trying to get drones in and and even rc airplanes and just for a hobby just for fun and you know once we started the market started opening and moving we brought like fpv which is the goggles we brought that into the market basically well, I was literally one of the first people in Saudi Arabia to even have an FPV drone here. This is you're talking 2014. Regular drones weren't weren't really you know readily available. I had an FPV drone and was flying an FPV drone around. So when we started filming with it, people started picking up on the FPV world and and they were requesting FPV drones. I started doing it as a side gig, you know, freelancing, 
And here I am, I'm working for Boeing as a director of operations at the end of my career. You know, I was a director, um, MRO manager. So the maintenance, repair and overhaul uh, hangar, that was what I ran, you know. And then, and then after that, I got a job with Zane as the director of operations for drones. They opened up a drone company and I was doing inspection on petrochemical plants with Aramco and, and Sabic and, and all these big companies inspecting their, their facilities with drones, which was just, I would have never ever imagined that I was gonna be doing something that I had so much fun with. Now I'm doing it as, as an everyday job, you know? So imagine a smile on my face when I go to work, you know? Well, well it's, that's, it's really interesting because that's a, that's a booming business in and of itself. You know, major facilities with extensive things, you don't have to send out a crew in a truck, you just send out the drone. And, yeah. And and so 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 you've got you you've got a good gig, AZ. You've got a good job. You got a wife, two kids. You're making good money. You got yeah. a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And so and you so you just leave it all and you start your own production company. <laughs> you know, it's called the leap of faith. You know, I'm well, sure you know, you've heard of this before. <laughs> I got to give your props to your wife in the first place, who who was a newlywed and came over to you to sat with Saudi. So she clearly has is she's clearly is all in and has, has this great. <laughs> well, she's half Saudi too, by the way. Well, there you so go. All right. Oh, yeah. awesome. So when, <laughs> yeah, did you, when, did, when did you start? When did you go out on your own? So this happened. I was doing I was doing a lot of freelancing work for about a good I would say a good solid two years right so I wasn't it wasn't something that was like overnight I was doing a lot of gigs and doing a lot of jobs and stuff it's actually a couple of times that I ran into Mo doing these jobs and and uh, and that's how we kind of met so you know I saw a big potential in that and then and then I ran into the problem where I was running out of vacation time to do these jobs and and. And then I, I started to have to get other people to do jobs that I didn't want to lose clientele with. So I told my wife, I was like, look, I'm making some pretty good money on these, on some of these gigs, you know, where I'm making my salary in like, you know, a week, you know what I mean? My salary at my, at my lucrative job, you know, I mean, I, I was making really good money. And, and I just said, you know, I'm, I, I can, I have, I'm at a point, should I go full-time with my job? And turn this into a career in terms of a business, or should I continue up the the, the corporate ladder? You know, and and I kept thinking about it, man. I just the corporate ladder was just like I was, man. I was tired of that. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of red tape and politics, and you know, I was I'd rather be on a set filming a movie or a commercial and having fun. You know, I could be flying line of sight in neon. I don't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that that's what I did, and 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 you know, my wife was very supportive of that because it was a big family decision. I got a lot of responsibility. I got a house here in Saudi Arabia. I got a house in the United States. My mom is retired. She has no retirement. She lives off Social Security. She lives in my house. So I'm I'm trying to you know take care of that, and I'm trying to take care of us. So it was a big it was a big decision to make, and uh, but honestly, we're we're about six months into it now, and and. You know, alhamdulillah, I feel like it's like one of the best decisions I ever made. Just like leaving the army and going to Boeing, that was another big decision. You know what I mean? And and thank, thankfully, that was that was a good decision I made. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you had a book. You had 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 some clients before you made the leap, and and it looks, I did. You, you'd gotten so you 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 identified Mo as talent. You know, as somebody yes. you want to work quickly. With. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, where. Where have you shot, and is there any place in that has been just extraordinary or really notable? 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> there's, you know, with, with working with this job, and, and Mo will tell you the same, we get to go to some pretty unique destinations, especially here in Saudi Arabia, some places that, you know, Saudis have never been and never experienced. And then we get to present that to them as a place that they can go and visit and, and, and vacation at now because it's available to them. It's just sometimes they just don't know that that, that, that was available to them. So that's part of our job. I feel like part of our passion is also demonstrating Saudi Arabia and all of its beauty to the world, you know, but through our eyes. So, you know, places like Abha and, you know, Najran and, and places like the Red Sea and Alula have some of the, just the most spectacular, even Nyong and Wadi Tayyib Isim and all of these places that are just, you know, the salt flatlands. I mean, they're so amazing. We even have volcanoes that I didn't know about until I went to go shoot. We have these volcanic, uh, I did a, I did a, uh, a shoot with a, with a documentary series that was focused on archaeology and, and, uh, and uh, geo, uh, geo discovery of rocks and, and different things. And we went to these volcanic remains of an old volcano that was in Saudi Arabia. It was completely black lands of old volcanic rock. And it was just amazing to see here. Uh, it's extraordinary. I, and it is kind of neat because as the country opens up, you're sort of on the leading edge of it. And you mentioned Neo Malula, Abha, and Nantran, you know, they're going to be pouring a lot of money into the into the um, Southwest. And, and I, as I understand, there's going to have a significant initiative for the Eastern province coming up, you know, in this in this yeah. last half of this year. So you'll probably be over there, too. Um, Mo has already shot in Dammam and, and with beautiful destinations and some of our our uh, our clients and stuff out there. Very cool. Who are your clients? Government, private sector, production companies? Everybody. I mean, you know, people that are looking for for drone, you know, uh, videography and stuff. We we get them from everywhere, and I mean everywhere. We have production companies from the UK. We have production companies from Dubai and and all around the GCC. Uh, we have internal production companies that that want to shoot commercials, uh, that want to shoot movies. Um, we have government agencies like the Ministry of Sports that we've done a lot of work for. Uh, we've done a lot of work for the Ministry of Culture, for the Ministry of Tourism. So, you know, there, there's a lot of different types of clients in that and a lot of different types of filming going on with a lot of different types of goals uh, to use for the, that, that filming for. So yeah, another thing that I just wanted to point out there is our drone light shows, right? Yeah, so we have done probably about, I would say about 20 to 25 drone light shows here in Saudi Arabia. So we, I also work with a company that is run by a gentleman named Abdelhamana Sabeh, and uh, it's called Rising Star or New Rise Technologies. It's partnered with Silla, which is a semi-government agency. And uh, they brought us on to fly the drones. So they, they used to have some Chinese companies, you know, that, who they bought the drones from. And uh, they were flying all the drones for them as they were setting them up. Uh, and then they were using us to be there kind of supervising them. And then it transitioned into us tra getting trained and learning how to fly them. And now I've probably done about 15 drone light shows myself with one of our partners, Muhammad Hilal. And we've done all these drone light shows. And they're just so amazing, you know. So I just thought that that was... Something those are, worth mentioning. Yeah. Those are jaw-dropping. What's the largest yeah. number of drones you've had in one of those shows? So we had the Guinness World Record for the largest QR code. With I, I think it was 3,300 drones in the air, I want to say. Yeah, it was it was nuts. We also did the first television in the air. So we, we put 3,000 drones in the air, and we played a video in it for the Riyadh season opening last year, which was amazing. Yeah. 
So we've, we've done a lot of those. For the layman, how does that work? Surely you don't have 3,200 pilots on the ground. So you, <laughs> so you have them like coordinated somehow? Like what, what, how does it, how do you do it? Yeah. So, so a lot of people don't know how these work, right? And people have asked me that, like, you guys have 3,300 pilots? Like, <laughs> no, no, that's, that it's would all, be mayhem. It, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's all run on a, on a, on a software, right? So we, we storyboard something together. We put it together with the client. Uh, we go out there and put some images or we come up with some creative uh, uh, design and then we go in and put it into a software. Uh, they bring it to us and then we put it on our computer system. And that is what runs the actual show itself. So we have two computer laptops that are sitting there sending out the commands and all the, uh, the software and stuff on the drones themselves. The drones are run through what's called um, an AP system or like access points. So it's, it's just like Wi-Fi access points. Uh, they're set up all the way around our border, and that's what communicates to the drones through our computer system. So it's all it's all a touch of a button. And are you growing, Ag? I mean, in other words, you've got you and Mo, and but you got have you got other other talent also? You got to have to have an administrative side, probably. Yeah. So we have. I mean, I'm, I'm, I do wear multiple hats, you know, because I do do our I do our I do all of our accounting. I do all of our our client and business development. Well, well you're looking at you're looking at the nine six six and the Saudi US trade group. It's me and Lucian. Yeah. So yeah, we, we're good at a closet full of hats back there. <laughs> no, floor sweeping. Yeah, you know, yeah. We, we we're doing it all. No, but we do have Gabriel. So Gabriel uh, Pentanelli, he's a uh, he's a Romanian uh, expat, and he's working here in Saudi Arabia. He was working for a company called Lee Jam. Uh, which was uh, which was a, a company that that runs Fitness Time, which I, you may have heard of here in Saudi Arabia. He was doing all of their social media work and and camera work and stuff. Um, so he hired he actually hired us for for a gig for Fitness Time, and that's how we met. And uh, eventually, we just ended up working together on a couple of jobs. And uh, and now he's come over to work with AZ Aerials. Now he's a full time employee with AZ Aerials, and he does a lot of our editing. Uh, he flies um, a lot of our drones, our Mavic drones, and and uh, some of our city whoops as well, FPV. So, and he's really good. You know, I kind of I kind of taught him how to fly FPV in the beginning when he first saw it when we first started shooting together. So he got really excited about it, and now he's on the team. So maybe you can geek out for us a little bit and tell us the different kind of drones you fly, and 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 their and their uses. You know, when you need them, when you when you need them, when, when you need the monster behind you, when you need the hummingbird ones, whatever you know, yeah. whatever you have. Yeah, certainly. So so obviously we have the Cinelifter. This is one of, like I said, our biggest drones. Uh, this thing is massive. This is in its closed form. You can actually you can actually open this thing up, and it gets bigger. And, and then it, it condenses down to go back into its box. But this is the big monster. So this one we film on sets like movie sets, uh, big commercials, big budget, uh, things like that, because it's, it's really a, an expensive drone. It's not a, a cheap piece of equipment to put in the air. Um, normally some of the cameras that go on there cost upwards of 50,000 to $100,000. So um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's usually about one hundred eighty thousand to two hundred thousand dollars flying in the air. Steady hands. I can see you. Everybody, clear out of the way. Give me space. Yeah. When this comes out, that's it. No joking around. We got to take it seriously. <laughs> Mo, is there a specific type you fly? Yeah. So I mainly specialize in the FPV drones, and there's different sizes to those as well. We've got big ones, not that size, but we've got FPV drones that carry those same exact cam uh, expensive cameras 
I've also got smaller ones that carry GoPros mainly. And um, yeah, we've got ones with exposed propellers, which we fly outdoors. And we've got ones specialized for indoors and around crowds. They're called Cine Whoops. They're very safe. Um, we usually fly, yep, there you go. That, that's, that's tiny. That, that's the Avada. Yeah, it's cool. like palm so that's, yeah. the, that's the protected propeller one. Yep, yeah, that, we would call that a Cine Whoop. And that's super safe around people. When you're on a, a film set, you can fly around the, the actors and whatnot. And even when I'm flying around uh, some supercars, I like to fly with the Cine Whoop in case anything goes wrong, you know. Is safe. there like, is there training you can do that's not like live drone because you're doing it at yeah. like through your thing. So like, yeah, you can probably practice or whatever, oh, or like study landscape at home and stuff. 100%. There are flight simulators, drone simulators where we put in a lot of hours. Now these simulators are on your computer. All you have to do is just buy a controller and you connect it and you, you're basically flying. Now it is realistic. It's not, I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent realistic, especially when it comes to the physics, the gravity of the drone. But whenever somebody comes up to me and asks me, Hey Mo, how can I get started um, flying? Where do I start? I say, Hey, buy yourself a controller and download the simulator before you do anything, don't make the same mistake I did and other people did, which is buying a drone right away and just sending it out. Hey, in, in my days, there were no FPV simulators, but <laughs> when I started, it was, but actually, it was crazy. Isn't the true essence of entrepreneurs to fail? So you oh, go yeah. out and get your drone and crash it and go, oh my goodness. Oh, we failed a lot. <laughs> yeah. Just as long as it doesn't happen with that big rig behind you, then oh my it's God. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're kind of past that point. I mean, for the most part, you know, thank God, all of our guys are very professional and, and uh, they're very skilled and stuff. So, uh, but we did, you know, in the beginning when we were all getting into this, there was a lot of crashing. Uh, you tend to try to fly things that are a lot less expensive and just use them as a crash type of uh, drone, you know, something that you can fix or repair. Um, FPV is like that. I've built all of my own FPV drones, by the way. So all the FPV drones that I fly, I normally have built myself. So when I crash them, I can tend, you know, I can tend to fix them. You know, they, they come in this little box. This is, this is a flight controller and an ESC. This is basically the brain and what controls the speed of the motors and all that stuff. You know, that's what it starts off as. And then we solder all the motors to it. We program it. We connect it to the computer. We do all the, the updates and all that stuff. And, and we build it out of some carbon fiber kits. You know, you couldn't, I don't think you could concoct you, AZ. You know, a mechanic, you know, half Saudi, uh, with, you know, with, you know, in terms of, you know, being part of the grow industry, industry growth. That's fascinating. What kind of competition do you guys have? Are there lots of people trying to get into the space? Well, well, you know, initially there wasn't, it wasn't too many, but there are a lot of companies popping up now. So there's, there's several companies out there that are, that are developing and, and coming into this. Um, I would say that, that we're one of the more seniors in terms of experience. Um, maybe I am because I'm, I'm old, you know, what I mean? <laughs> and, I, and I did, I did a lot of this stuff in the beginning. So I have a lot of experience under my belt that I'm able to to kind of help my team out with. So when they don't understand something, they can just refer to me and then I'll help them out, whether that's on set or whether it's on a drone uh, or whether it's technique or anything like that. So so that's that's really helpful when it comes to um, uh, development, you know, personal development and training and things like that. I'm able to 
to kind of quickly train these guys on new new kit, new equipment. This drone, we actually I went to Vancouver to pick it up in Canada. Huh. Uh, I brought it. I brought it to Texas, and then from Texas, I brought it went back with me on the plane. I registered it while I was in Texas and brought it back with me. But while I was in the states, I went to Washington, Seattle, where this drone is made, and I actually went to the course there to learn how to fly it. I'm guessing that's not a carry-on item. <laughs> no, I had to pay a lot of money to get the the, the box is huge. So <laughs> Buy a business class seat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Sit right here. <laughs> so is you know we cover all of uh, Saudi Arabia and we cover all of Vision 2030 and different sectors and that sort of thing. There's always, you know, whatever the the launch or the the project, you know, a lot of it has to do with upscaling and developing Saudi talent. When you look around in this industry, is there young talent coming along? Absolutely. Definitely. You know, His Royal Highness Mohammed bin Salman, you know, he he has been he has been one of like the shining, you know, stars for us here because he has just put it out there like we're going to develop Saudi Arabia. We're going to develop our youth. uh, We're going to give opportunities to Saudis. And I think that has really jump started this this whole mindset of go out there, build your capability build your businesses, be innovative and, and bring something new to, to the table. And I think that's really motivated, especially a, a lot of younger Saudis like Mo and, and a lot of, even myself, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm 41 years old, but man, I see all these younger Saudis that, that back in the day, they weren't, I didn't, they weren't as ambitious as they are now. Now they, they feel like they have the opportunity to bring something new to the table and, and, and be, you know, be innovative and bring, you know, just bring their talents and, and, and capability. And, and it's just really awesome to see. It's been fascinating to watch. I first went to Saudi in the eighties and actually, and, and know a little bit about Boeing, but this was in their AWACS version. You know, this is way oh, back yeah. when. Um, yeah. Uh, but so we, you know, been able to see this over sort of a long timeline and absolutely it's different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yeah. different. Yeah. It's wonderful. I, I love it. It's, it's a great time to be in Saudi Arabia. So you guys do also like if you're not like one of the biggest players, you're not like the Ministry of Tourism, but you're sort of a small to medium sized company and you have something right. that you physically want to show off. Um, trying to think of an example off the top of my head, but you, maybe you have a, a, a factory or something that you think people want to see. Can they approach you? Because I see your website says, uh, you know, you also edit some of the videos and stuff, too. So you're also yeah. a bit of a production company as well. So, right. so so these opportunities can approach you directly online or how would they find yeah. you? Yeah, so so we have a website, right? Um, you can go to uh, azfilms.com or azrckssa.com. Um, also, our Instagram, azarialsksa. Uh, uh, that's probably one of Instagram has just been amazing for me. That's another thing, right? When I, when I was working, you know, f- for the corporation at Zane, my first job was was through Instagram. My first paid job, right, was through Instagram. A guy contacted me. It was a production company, and they had a French production company coming to film for Red Sea and Amala. And they wanted some FPV drones. You know, this is in 2016-ish. And they're like, do you know how to fly FPV? I've seen your your Instagram and, and you posted some some videos. And at that time, they were just videos of me flying, chasing cars and, and you know, <laughs> drift cars and, and going out to the desert and things like that. So I was like, I've never done it for money before, but I'll take a whack at it, you know. <laughs> And uh, and that was really what what lit the candle to to getting into it commercially. You know, it was Instagram. So to this day, I would say Instagram is probably one of our biggest platforms in terms of 
how do you find AZ Aerials and how do you contact us? Because my phone number is on there, our website's on there, and uh, you can DM us directly, you know? You guys are about to get a highly coveted follow from me in about oh, 10 yeah. minutes. <laughs> highly coveted. Highly coveted. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> well, our, our stories are really cool because we post stories of all of our jobs. So if you were if you were on a couple of days ago, you would have seen us in Neom filming a live broadcast with this drone and us just having a ball, you know? That's awesome. In, in 50, 50 hour kilometer winds. <laughs> what's your what's your Instagram handle again, just so our listeners and viewers can can toss you a follow? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be AZ Aerials KSA. Okay, cool. We're going to put that in the production as well so you can't miss it because I can't wait to see that as we we wrap. You'll get a less coveted follow from me. (laughs) (laughs) Numbers are numbers. (laughs) Well, no, it's just so amazing. So you're out at Red Sea Amala in 2016. And and, and, and actually, Lucian and I have a a bit of envy. So, you know, we finally got to see Alula this year. Um, we'd love to see Neon. We'd love to get to Red Sea. We'd love to get, you know, hopefully maybe we could see Kadia. But but my point is, is, you know, Red Sea is just about to launch. They'll open three three hotels later this year. Yeah. But you're seeing it at the, you know, very early stage. And you've probably oh, yeah. been back since. So you, it's just amazing what you get to see in this in this job. Yeah. All those hotels you're talking about, we filmed them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're actually going out there in two weeks to film another one. <laughs> Well, I was talking with somebody about trying to get to Neom, and I know Lucian, you wanted to try and get to Neom, and and they said, well, you know, it's mostly a construction site now. And I was thinking, yeah, I'd kind of like to see it. Yeah, you know, because at some point it'll be more than that. Definitely. I mean, it's it's really me and Mo. Mo kept making comments as we were driving to the airport. He's like, "Can you see the amount of trucks that are here? It's, it's unbelievable." Like, I've never seen anything like it before. It was just construction trucks, as far as the eye can see. And it looks like they're working on a 24 hour. They're not taking any breaks because we finished our shoot like 8 PM and we were, we left the hotel at 10 to go to the airport and you could still see construction was going on. They had big lights to light up the sites. And I was like, yeah, this is really happening. And a lot of people, a lot of my friends in the States asked me, Hey, is the line really happening? Is Neom really a thing? I'm like, yeah, it is. (laughs) I think I think that should be a new catchphrase for Saudi Arabia because we hear it all the time. Yeah, this is really happening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Almost, it seems like so many of our guests at some point go, "Yeah, this is really happening." <laughs> yeah, when I worked for Zane, we did, we did. Uh, so, like I said, we were doing inspection and we did land surveys as well, right? So, Neom was was a big client for us, and we we went out there a few times to do land surveying for for pre construction work and and uh, build built to plan type of a 3d mapping and things like that wow uh, lucian wants yeah. to know if you did the golf course at Sindala. uh no i didn't <laughs> i <laughs> wish i would have <laughs> well they're going to own not yet a buddy of mine is doing the golf course for gadia so that whole Gidea golf course, he's actually doing all the uh, the inspection. It's, his name is Mohammed Hilal, and he's he's actually an, another drone pilot that's got his own little freelance um, um, gig. But see, that's that's the thing. A lot of us work together, right? A lot of us kick work back and forth with each other. There's a lot of smaller companies that have their own thing going, and we all either work on you know similar projects together or like Middle Beast. It's 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 about five or six of us, and we're all working for different people, but then somebody will get this contract and be like, Hey, I need four more pilots. You know, let's do this together. You know, and that's how we did the middle beast. 
Can we ask you about Middle Beast? Because uh, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I feel like that's that's the the live event in Saudi that people outside of Saudi are talking about. I mean, there's a lot of them yeah. happening. But um, what what are you guys doing for that? Are you like filming the the acts and the like the actual the whole thing? Like, tell us about it. Yeah, and, and hopefully, what I'll do is is probably give you some video to that, so that when we're talking about this, you can kind of kick some B roll sure. to it. Yeah. Uh, so we do a lot of great filming with Middle Beast. We do hyperlapses of the entire event like from sun sunrise or sunset uh we'll do things like flying through the shows uh we film like most of the acts especially the big acts like you know we were filming like post malone and dj Khaled last year which was which was really amazing uh we do broadcasting so sometimes we will stream the actual event live through one of our drones the inspire uh we'll send a feed right to the to the video house and they'll stream it online uh, and then we do a lot of uh, it's Middle Beast is amazing because their media tent is it's like an ant farm. It's like a bunch of ants, everybody working on different things because they're uploading videos as it's happening. People don't realize it's like as that three day event is happening, they're constantly uploading to their social media. I mean, we have to come in there after we do a shoot, quickly give it to the DIT, which is the, the digital uh, ingestion technician. He takes all the data. He gives it to the editor. They start editing, and then they put out a, a, a 30 second or 50, 15 second clip. So it's a lot of fast paced filming um, of different things throughout the day, and, and we're all kind of assigned different tasks. So you go fly some FPV here. You go do a hyperlapse over here. You go take this stage, and we're all on headsets and you know flying around. And you know there's manned helicopters with VIPs coming in. We got to land everything, then take back off. It's it's a really hectic three days i mean we go in at 3 p.m and we get done at 3 a.m so. so is there a middle beast air traffic controller right they're out of here yeah. <laughs> i mean they got no, that's no, amazing they do, they do have they do have a uh, a centralized uh uh communications there it's really organized i mean you know the military and and all the the safety agencies that are there whether it be royal guard or or uh or or uh, the uh the helicopter company who operates out of there uh, you know, those guys are so organized. We have meetings before we talk about our operations for the next three days. Uh, they give us our call signs. They give us all the uh, EPs, which are emergency procedures, uh, things like that, that we would have to do in case of an emergency. Uh, you know, the helicopter has the right of way. So anytime that comes in, we have to land. Uh, we all get on WhatsApp groups for the different, you know, the different filming, whether it's drone filming or, or, uh, or the controllers and stuff. That way we're alerted in several different ways. If our comms go down, then we have our cell phones, you know? So it's, it's really been uh, quite a logistical nightmare, but, but it's almost like, like a ballet, right? I mean, they, they play it so well and, and, and it's really organized and it flows really nicely. And we're talking about the Soundstorm. That's the three day festival. It's, it's, it's really amazing to see in Saudi Arabia, something like that happening on a yearly basis. The, the footage is astounding and the numbers are astounding. Yeah. The number of yeah. uh, people. Anything you see from the air is us, by the way. As we, as we sort of wrap this up, how do you guys see yourself growing next year? I mean, because you guys are on fire right now and we're yeah. excited to be speaking with you now. Where do you guys see this going in 2024? Yeah, so, so right now, and I'll, I'll give it to you how it is, man. We're a small company. We're working out of an apartment uh, that's like a three-bedroom apartment, one office, which is this. This is our area where we keep all of our equipment and drones. You can see containers behind me and landing pads and everything. <laughs> wow. um, this is where we, where we operate of right now, but, but, you know, I want to take us to the next level. So we've been looking for a space now, uh, Jack's, which is in Dereia. I'm mm -hmm. sure you guys are familiar with Dereia. They have what's called the Jack space. 
and it's like a bunch of hangars slash studio type Hollywood looking place. And they're putting a lot of production companies in. So we would like to be in there. That way we can be closer to the, to the production companies, but there's a waiting list. It's like 80 people long. So, so we're trying to, I want to hold off. If we can find something similar to that, then then I wouldn't mind moving into that, but I want to kind of hold off and see if we can't get a space in there. Uh, And then, and then we want to grow um, several more pilots uh, and, and an administrative a part of the, the the business. So I want to hire in, you know, a business development person. I want to hire in a, 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 an office manager uh, and then maybe an assistant to help us with, uh, you know, a couple of different things. We're hiring on a driver slash assistant right now next month. So um, he'll be our next, you know, member of the team. But but we are wanting some administrative and some new pilots coming in to, to help us uh, grow. Well, I think we need to agree that we'll have you on again in uh, sometime either next year and sometime. Let's just book it because you're, you're like an aerial yeah. roadmap. You're an aerial roadmap <laughs> to the new Saudi Arabia. You know, I mean, you're yeah. going to be yeah, going yeah. places where most are, it, it's it's just a fascinating space you're in right now. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we, we do get that unique opportunity. We get to go places where people just don't get to go. You know what I mean? Even even when it's sometimes it's private you know, places that we can, that we get to go that nobody else gets to go and, and show, you know, we went to Aramco's, uh, Aramco's, um, what is it called? They call it Mahmiya in Arabic. It's uh, for preservation, for animal preservation. Uh, and it was beautiful. I mean, seeing those animals there, and ostrich like came right up to me, you know what I mean? And, and nobody gets to go there and fly a drone, you know, that just doesn't happen. So having those kind of opportunities to be able to shoot that kind of stuff is just something I would have never thought we were able to do. We, we, we just did that in Alula. Alula has a, a, also a reservation for animals. And uh, they said that we were the first people to fly drones in that area. So I was like, man, that's, that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Mohammed Ghazi, Mo, Abdul Hadi Azuz, who goes by AZ from the drone film company, AZ Aerials. Toss them a follow, as I tend to do in about 90 seconds, at AZ Aerials <laughs> KSA, based in Riyadh. Guys, this was super fun. And one more thing. Um, AZ, we need to introduce you to uh, Nora Ortiz, who was a previous guest of ours on the 966. She runs a Mexican restaurant in Riyadh in the diplomatic quarter called Don Ruben. It's the already uh, met her. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> good. Small world. Nora, I was like, <laughs> she, she's great. We we had we had uh, we had obviously because I'm Mexican, but we had uh, some food there the other day, and I took my mother there. My mother comes back and forth from Texas, and uh, we actually met her, and I was amazed. I was like, oh, you're you're you know you're American, this and that. She was married to Saudi, and, and it was just great, you know, to meet her there. It was, it was so cool. And their, their food is amazing, by the way. So, wait so if a you second. guys are in Riyadh, go That's there. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. Well, and she was amazing. So she's it was mother approved. Your your mom was happy oh. with it. Oh yeah, yeah. She loved oh, it. Wow. She she every time she comes, she wants to go over there. My kids all the also like, can we go eat at the Mexican restaurant? <laughs> no, no, no. Nor should yeah. find some way to use use your mom as promotion. You know, mother approved. <laughs> yeah. Actual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, AZ, nice. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for yeah. having us. Thank you, man. It was really a pleasure to be on with you guys. That was our conversation with Mohammed Ghazi and Abdul Hadi Azuz, AZ, and Mo. Thank you both so much for joining us. We appreciate the time with them. That was super cool. They're now part of our our, our family, 966 family. We'll have to come back and visit them. You know, hopefully they'll get that 
that that space in the Jacks district. Hopefully, they'll continue to keep growing. I know they're talking about trying to build AZ aerials. Uh, everyone go see their Instagram page. It's insane. Uh, and yeah, so this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun to watch them, you know, build their business. Yep. Their Instagram pages are confirmed. Awesome. I know that I ended that episode saying that I would follow them within 90 seconds and I did. And had, uh, <laughs> it's definitely worth it if you're listening or, or watching us to, to add them to a follow. Cause it's super cool. Really. Uh, and we discussed it a really amazing window into Saudi Arabia. These guys are these guys are making the video that you're going to see in productions later. Uh, so it's pretty rad. So let's get to yellow, Richard. What do you think? This is our segment where we read the top six storylines from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and we sort of discuss them fairly quickly to sort of finish this up into the weekend. Uh, sticking with the theme of trying to lead into this with a little bit more explanation instead of just. Yeah, that's very good. It's very good. Saudi <laughs> in a minute. Yella. Yeah, I had to get, you know, I was do, I was anxious to we get to it. Yeah, we don't have to give up on that. <laughs> just this person was just like, yeah, I mean, I, we didn't couldn't figure out what was going on there. We thought maybe you guys forgot to edit that out. I was like, no, that's something we've done for 109 episodes now. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and sadly, it's something I really look forward to every episode. Sure. It's, yeah. It's a, that's, that's why a, we're that's here. A, that's, a, that's a pathetic commentary. On, on, <laughs> <laughs> but also now after you told, you know, when you and you and Abdul Rahman, you know, were wandering around Alula and, you know, when you when he when he would say Saudi in a minute, you know, when you would say yellow. Now, I, I there are so many things associated with Abdul Rahman, you know, like his favorite sport, football and golf and that sort of thing. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny. Really. He's he's obviously a successful executive, as we know. And, we you know, the U.S., a huge major company, a huge U.S.-based construction EPC company. And so, you know, he's he's very timely he, he's, he's very prompt so and i'm not that i'm prompt but i'm not that prompt and so when we were going around alila he would sort of be like all right we're clearly we're doing something else now what is taking you so damn long you know wouldn't say that you know but he'd be like yella yella and then he'd go sorry in a minute <laughs> so um such a good dude such a good dude yes first rate um yella number one a white house readout reported that president joseph biden spoke with Crown Prince and Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman about the situation in the Middle East region. The two leaders agreed on pursuing broader diplomatic efforts to maintain stability across the region and prevent the conflict from expanding. They welcomed the delivery of humanitarian assistance from Egypt into Gaza and recognized that much more is needed for civilians to have sustained access to food, water, and medical assistance. The president welcomed the Gulf Cooperation Council contribution of $100 million to support these humanitarian efforts and discussed the disbursement of $100 million from the U.S. to support the response. They also affirmed the importance of working towards a sustainable peace between Israelis and Palestinians as soon as the crisis subsides, building on the work that was already underway between Saudi Arabia and the United States over recent months. They were agreed to remain in close coordination directly and through their teams over the coming period. So this is interesting because you did have the Saudi statement as well come out, which was not the same, but it's good that they were talking. I mean, that's, I think it's probably one of the more important conversations that happened last week between two high level people in the region. Let me just read a few of these parts. Uh, HRH Mohammed bin Salman spoke with Joe Biden. Receiving a, tele receiving a telephone call from the U.S. president, the crown prince underscored the necessity of immediate work to explore means of halting the military operations that claim the lives of innocent people. 
He highlighted the rejection of targeting civilians. Crown Prince emphasized the need for achieving calm, stopping escalation, avoiding a situation that affects security and stability of the region. I don't think either of us are, are experts on reading between the lines of the of the verbiage of either of these, but it is, I think, good that they talked. What I think was also interesting, Richard, is a previous guest of the 966, probably one of our top five guests in terms of how much we just enjoyed the conversation, a speech made by His Royal Highness Prince Turkey Al-Faisal of Saudi Arabia this week on the current violence in the Middle East also gave us a glimpse into some Saudi thinking at the top. Prince Turkey gave this speech to a U.S. audience at Rice University this week in Houston, and the speech did have direct criticism of Hamas. He's sort of an elderly statesman in, in Saudi circles. Obviously, his resume is 100 pages long in terms of what he's accomplished, so he's very well respected in Saudi Arabia. And he basically said, um, you know, that that there were no heroes, only victims, that Hamas and Israel are to blame for attacking civilians. So he did, he's one of the first Saudis if he's maybe the only Saudi to say that Hamas was wrong in attacking Israel first, you just got to be careful in the words there. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. And that's very, that's very good. And just for clarification, because I know that you want it because Prince, uh, Prince Turkey is a friend. He would want to be referred to as an elder statesman rather than an elderly statesman. <laughs> Wait, what did I say? Elder statesman? Elderly, but that's okay. Oh, elderly and statesman. The, yeah. and then, well, no, and I'm just, you know, again, uh, but this is uh, this is such a sensitive subject, and I have to I have to commend Joe Biden. Um, you know, I think in something like this, and you have it, 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 you know you have the the attack by Hamas, which was brutal and 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 devastating in many ways, uh, and you have the response from Israel, along with all the emotions that go with it. Uh, and you have to be aware, if you're the U.S. president, that anything Israel does will uh, implicate the U.S. In other words, if you're looking at perceptions in the region, which Joe Biden is, you know, it doesn't matter if if, if the U.S. said, oh, we want no part of this and did nothing, and Israel you know, went forward in its, its choices, it, it would still involve the U.S. The U.S. would still be uh, condemned or associated with the actions of Israel. So Joe Biden said, all right, if that's the case, I'm going to get fully involved and try and uh, have input on these actions. As you've seen him, you know, engage with Netanyahu, who is clearly disoriented and, you know, I, you know, smarter people than I, but I mean, he, he, he obviously was shocked. He's taken no responsibility, which is sort of his, his style. Um, He's allowed uh, members of his cabinet to, to, you know, be very aggressive in their commentary versus, you know, with regard to attacking Hezbollah or, you know, basically devastating all of Gaza. And anyway, so he has he hasn't been much of a leader, in my opinion. Joe Biden has stepped in, and I think, you know, you know, his reference to nine eleven is say, look, I understand your emotions, but, you know, we overreacted, and it didn't help our national interest in the way we overreacted. And you see Israel, you know, still, obviously they're bombing, but they haven't had a ground incursion yet. They're, they're sort of leading up to it. But in any case, I see the president trying to, and very much in line with the crown prince and, what, and, and Saudi leadership, trying to in some way um, control civilian losses, in some way, 
um, achieve uh, a response that uh, won't engulf the region and, uh, and you know, trigger uh, Hezbollah or other groups to come in. And also, to be honest, with an eye to what comes after. And, I, you know, we can't go into this too deep here, but I, I think, you know, Joe Biden has said, okay, you know, maybe, you know, this is a horrible situation and, and we want to try and, you know, control the, the fallout and, and minimize the deaths and the hardship and the suffering. Um, and maybe we can come out on the other side with something better. Um, I think that's what he's aiming at. So anyway, I, I, I see Joe Biden and his many, many years of, of his political career and his ability and relationships with Israel playing a very important role right now. And uh, I, I commend him for it. You know, he's it's it's a it's a really difficult challenge because there are so many players here that have fingers on triggers that can make it worse and they want to make it worse. And this includes, of course, Iran and others and, and extremist groups. And, and, you know, Russia would love to see it blow up. Um, so we don't know how this is going to end. I, I, I really do feel like Joe Biden is doing an admirable job. Reaching out, coordinating with Saudi Arabia is very important. Um, and I do believe Saudi Arabia and the U.S. are on the same page on this uh, in, in trying to avoid um, uh, uh, expansion of the conflict and trying to minimize civilian uh, deaths and, and you know, the, the terrible, terrible things that come with what Israel's planning. Yeah, indeed, it is terrible. And I think what's happening in Gaza now is sickening. And I personally would love to see a ceasefire right now. But I mean, nobody cares what I think. But that's my view of it. I think it's just really awful. And I don't think two wrongs make a right. So I'm just like, you know, well, here, just... here's, here's, sorry to interrupt. But I mean, this was and, and this is the thing I think most Americans and, and most uh, a lot of Israelis don't want to hear, you know, and uh, and, but this is Jordan's queen, queen Rania was asked on CNN. And she said, was asked as an Arab and as a Palestinian, a human being and a mother, uh, how do you feel about the, you know, October 7th killing and what's followed? And she said, essentially, she said, look, she, obviously nobody endorses what Hamas did. Uh, but she said, you know, in terms of bombing of Gaza, it's a double standard. And she said, quote, are we being told it is wrong to kill an entire family at gunpoint, but it's okay to shell them to death, unquote. So I share this simply because this is very much the attitude in, you know, the, the Middle East and the region. And, and why, you know, I think most Saudis, most Muslims, you know, are like Prince Turkey and they they can't condone the behavior of Hamas, uh, but like you say, does this you know does this merit does this give a green light to to do terrible things to civilians in Gaza? Yep, it's 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 a good point, and just would love to see it stop twenty days ago, especially now and. Uh, yeah, so hopefully, hopefully the regional diplomacy with with the United States in there works, and this, yeah, it's just it's horrible. So, um, Yella number two, 
FII, <laughs> Richard, we, we, our, our timing of this, it's, it's so funny. The last, not funny, but the last two weeks we've discussed this topic. It's extremely heavy. And then we, but we have to go on with the show. And our next yellow, yellow number two is FII happening in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. JP Morgan, JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, Citigroup's Jane Frazier and other top names on Wall Street were in Saudi Arabia for the seventh FII investment conference as they try to look beyond risks that the Israel-Hamas war could widen into a regional conflict and deal a new blow to the global economy. Dubbed Davos in the desert, the annual FII saw about 6,000 participants from more than 90 countries over three days. Now in its seventh year, the event has retained its appeal despite U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin warning Sunday about potential escalation in the Middle East and possible attacks on American interests. Um, yes. Uh, of course they're going to go. This is seven years in. It's a significant, significant gathering. You know, it's, you know, the, the Davos in the desert now is actually legit. You know, the, the, you know, the comparisons to the World Economic Forum, which sort of occupies its own space as the, the grandfather of them all. Uh, but this is a big event. And if you're, you know, you're going to be there if you're a serious player and you want to be, you know, be plugged into those investment opportunities and, uh, so uh, and this was one of those where we, we, we put in there so we could sort of dismiss it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to go on. And I think you mentioned that, you know, th this year they had membership fees uh, and, uh, you know, maybe maybe what, 15 to 20 people dropped out, according to the organizers uh, of the 6000 registered. So, yeah, people are there. It's heavily subscribed. Things are happening. I think 15 to the 20 dropped out directly related to the regional conflict. Right. So, cause right. yeah, that's not why I didn't go, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't think, I think, um, I, was, I tried to like email them and just say, Hey, like I, I'm not going to make it, not going to make my flight. And can I give my ticket to somebody else? And they were like, no, <laughs> see you next year. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we just, we, we wanted to include this because I think it's, it's good to know. I mean, it, it was a big news event constant stream of news and this and it's part of the problem with fii is that, that the news making things almost crowd out some of the stuff that should deserve its own news platform we saw a previous guest of the 966 prince walid bin nasser al saud and princess rima bin bandar saudi arabia's ambassador to the united states do a deal for ocean preservation i think we should ask them about that and see what's up but really cool stuff there just a lot of good stuff comes out of fii it's a really impressive event so congrats to the organizers and participants this year for yellow a successful event oh sorry no you're good uh, yellow number three saudi energy minister prince abdulaziz bin salman said on tuesday that recent multi-billion dollar acquisitions by u.s oil majors exxon Mobil and chevron of smaller rivals showed that hydrocarbons were, quote, here to stay, unquote. Chevron said on Monday it would buy Hess in a $53 billion all-stock deal. <clears throat> Less than two weeks after fellow U.S. major, ExxonMobil said it would buy Pioneer Natural Resources, shale, um, for $59.5 billion in stock. Quote, Exxon Chevron didn't buy because they want to have stranded assets, said Prince of Villazese. He's, he, he's speaking at the FII, to, you know, keep the theme, uh, adding that the acquisitions, quote, could not have come at a better time, unquote. Uh, Prince Abdulaziz said the energy transition will require hydrocarbons, including petrochemicals. Uh, uh, the deals have drawn some rebuke from environmentalists who see them as undercutting climate goals. Yeah, I mean, 
that that is undercutting climate goals. The climate goals would demand that we basically start phasing off of hydrocarbons, but it's just not realistic in the in the world economically, according to these investments. So, you know, more investments then needed into developing EV infrastructure faster into, um, you know, cl- uh, carbon scrubbing from the air. But yeah, I mean, they, they're they're speaking with their investments here. They're, they're saying that this industry is not going anywhere. Don't have much to add. Just that, that comment. No, it is interesting. And <clears throat> You know, finding a way to uh, taper down uh, oil production and energy production, and, and you know, and in a manner that it doesn't disrupt key industries and and basic requirements. We've talked about the fact that you know, much of Africa, a significant percentage of Africans, Africans don't have enough power, oil or non-renewable, oil or renewable. Otherwise, um, the other thing is 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 the International Energy Agency, which is which of which the Saudi Arabia Saudis are not a big fan, came out with its World Energy Outlook this week, and um, you can follow all this by the way on Sustig Review. We cover all this stuff, um, and they basically said, uh, you know, that uh, oil production should start declining, peak uh, oil demand should peak by 2030, and their point is that. That the, you know, the clean energy economy is is really thriving in terms of EVs and renewables. China economy is slowing, um, and solar capacity is really you know picking up. And so that's their prediction. Again, the Saudis, you know, when the Saudi Saudis have a when they do their their uh, predictions and assessments uh, and extrapolations, I think they have like a basket of eight inputs. Um, of like Rystad or whatever, you know, key people who track markets and that sort of thing. <clears throat> and then they come up with their own. They recently kicked off the IEAs um, as part of that basket because I really disagree with a lot of their predictions. But again, these are these are bets people are making. And it's hard to, you don't know the, uh, you know, that's why they call it risk. Uh, you know, making educated bets. Um, and and you know Prince Prince Abdulaziz has said all along on the energy transition that you know we can't stop investing and making capital investments in the oil industry and the fossil fuel industry because it'll leave us hung out to dry. Um, uh, so in any case, we'll see how that bet unfolds. Should be interesting. Yellow number four. A boundary-pushing esports festival is to take place in Saudi Arabia next summer. The inaugural esports World Cup was announced by Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman during the new Global Sport Conference and will be held annually. He was physically there, actually. He was there. Organizers claim to have the, quote, largest prize pool in esports history, end quote, although details are yet to be released. The esports World Cup will build on current gaming events in the country, such as the Gamers 8 Tournament which featured tournaments in various games with a total cash prize of $45 million. The Esports World Cup is the next natural step in Saudi Arabia's journey to become the premier global hub for gaming and esports, offering an unmatched esports experience that pushes the boundaries of the industry since Prince Mohammed. It makes sense, you know, Saudi Arabia. It, well, first of all, esports is interesting. Uh, we found it interesting because it, it's organic. I mean, because so many young Saudis have been into esports and then uh, obviously the crown prince is very much into esports as he shared with his, you know, an interview with with Fox recently um, and something everybody sort of knew. 
so there was a, there, there's a, there's a there's a, a native indigenous interest, you know, in terms of Saudi Arabia, and you know, over the last five years, Saudi has gone heavily into esports, and this is this is very you know much part of their playbook. A term I, I've been using a lot recently is all right. If we're going to go into this, we'll invest. We'll 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 try and generate and create and cultivate a local industry and capabilities. And by the way, let's convene the biggest show on earth. <laughs> because this is what this is what they do. So the esports, you know that that uh, that esports World Cup makes sense in the terms of all the things that have gone on before, and also in terms of the very organic and real interest in esports in Saudi Arabia. This will be fun to watch. This will be fun to watch. This is a yeah, it's a meaningful contribution here. So I mean, I think I'm not an esports guy. It's funny that that's like now becoming like a real industry. Like I I heard the other day that somebody's uh, one of my friends was playing golf with somebody and his son was getting an esports scholarship to college and he had to sort of ask for clarification like what do you mean how much does it pay I, yeah exactly i can't remember what college it was i'll have to ask this guy but i was just like that's hilarious you know so anyway but it is big business and uh, there are a lot of gamers in the world especially in saudi arabia so yeah cool. um yellow number is this me or you this is you Cinco. Uh, is this five? Yellow number, yeah. yellow, <laughs> number five. South Korea's Hyundai Engineering and Construction Company and Hyundai Engineering have signed a 2.4 billion contract with oil giant Saudi Aramco to build a gas processing plant. Seoul's presidential office said on Tuesday, the deal was signed on Monday in Riyadh at a ceremony to mark 50 years of construction cooperation between the two countries with South Korean President Yoon suk yeol attending as part of his state visit to the kingdom. I'm sure that's not correct. I apologize to all our South Korean friends. You 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 noted this earlier in the episode, but the Saudi South Korean bond right now is particularly strong and that's kind of good for the United States because South Korea is a really very strong ally of the United States. Um this event this week that started right before the FII was I mean, there was a lot that came out of it. Boy. And I think there's a lot of cooperation between Saudi Arabia and South Korea on the venture capital and developing entrepreneurship front and investing, especially with Saudi money going into South Korean tech. I think it's just like there's there's a lot of, of cooperation going on between South Korea and Saudi Arabia. So, so it's good to see. Yeah, this was a big this was this, you know, it didn't it didn't get overshadowed by the FII, but a lot of big things came out of it. And because obviously my one big thing was talking about an automotive MOU that came out of it. And obviously, this is a huge, uh, you know, energy deal. And there were something like 50 billion, 50, 50 MOUs signed uh, uh, on this. So it was a successful delegation, a successful summit. I thought that it was interesting that, uh, well, so Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman visited South Korea last year, 2022. And I think he mentioned it, correct me if I'm wrong, Richard or anybody, uh, he mentioned South Korea's rapid development as a model for Saudi Arabia. I mean, South Korea took longer than Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is doing. But I think he mentioned that in the interview with Fox a few weeks ago. Of the, I don't know why I think that. Maybe I was wrong. Yeah. But uh, yeah, anyway, so interesting. Yella number six, Neom has announced today the inauguration of its strategic investment arm, the Neom Investment Fund. Neom's wholly owned subsidiary, which is set up to support the build out and development of Neom's 14 priority sectors and deliver long term value while enabling creation of jobs in Neom. NIF, so like P 
PIF, but with Neom, will invest globally through mergers and acquisitions and venture capital and tech startups with a clear focus on pioneering growth companies and next-gen industries. NIF will also develop joint ventures and partnerships with large multinationals, institutional investors, and innovators in Neom. By the way, we got corrected on this before, Richard, and um, just hearing it over and over the last week, we keep you and I keep saying Neom, but I think it's Neom. So I'm going to try to do it going forward. So sorry for everybody. I did it there. So, yeah. Um, yes, we'll try. And I'm sure we botch all sorts of stuff. Apologies. Of course. We should Absolutely. do a blanket apology, a disclaimer right across the top, right across my forehead. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is interesting. And there's, there's so many investment vehicles now. Uh, they just a $200 million one that's through Kaust. And there's a lot of other ones. Obviously, PIF is massively active in this. And then there's private sector ones. Um, and I, I do wonder, uh, on, the, on the plus side, you know, you can see how a, a specific investment arm, strategic investment arm, can, can directly go out and, and attract or engage or merge or acquire uh, technologies and expertise that's specifically needed in the own. You know, that's good. But I always wonder with all these investment arms, how to track their performance. Who's tracking their performance? Because there's, a, you know, there's already a, there's already a, I think in terms of, of investment capacity, Saudi investment capacity, you know, uh, local investment capacity. It's already sort of straining at the seams. You know, it's already maxed out. So who's who's watching all these investments? And you know, monitoring if they're 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 effective, if it, you know these funds are well managed, that sort of thing. I'm not I'm not really saying it's going to be an issue. I just think it's interesting. So on the on the positive side, absolutely, you know. So you know, NIF has already targeted um, intentions to invest in companies such as Regent, Pony.ai, Boom Technology, Blue Nalu, and Animoca Brands. You know, and there'd be details to come out of this. But you know, who goes back and and does the metrics and and the performance indicators on what your investments were. Who's, who's, who's watching all this? It's interesting. Yeah, sir, Al Rumayan. That's just it. You know, he's, he's at the top of the pyramid. Uh, presumably, this is a separate entity and, and I have its own investors and that sort of thing. But again, you know, there's only, there's a lot of things going on now. And I'm assuming they all have, uh, you know, monitoring groups and, and compliance and that sort of thing, and then and then and then they'll have performance indicators. And but there's a lot going on, and it's hard to keep track, especially if you it's, especially you don't have a extraordinarily deep bench of of talent to do it. Yeah, I mean, this is like a, what what makes it. I mean, this will be just like a standard VC fund in the way that's set up. But what makes it different is they have this like national. It's not like in the investment thesis necessarily, although in some cases it is, but they have this sort of national interest and the number one interest in investing is making money. So when you have these other interests as well, it gets a little bit harder to, like you were kind of saying, measure success. Like what is the success rate? It's not just your ROI, but it's, well, and all these jobs were created and it gets a little bit hairier to keep track of. These guys have been operating in stealth mode for at least a year. They've made a, I don't know if it was their investment fund or just Neom before this was sort of created as it is NIF now, but they were making investments into quadcopter technology, not quadcopter, but uh, uh, EV OTL. 
the sort of drones that move people around. It's one of the coolest things I think right. out there. Um, so they've been doing investments sort of like this for a while. This sort of crystallizes the team that was working on that into a, an actual fund with, you know, government money basically is backing to get these technologies to set up in Neom. So um, in, in some way or another. So it's interesting. Um, we got to get over there, Richard, at some point. 100%, um, 100%. Yeah. You know, now that we pronounce it correctly, I think maybe they'll let us in. But um, prior to that, I think that was the last, you know, domino to fall is that we'd love to have those guys come over, but they can't say the name. Don't let these white Americans come in here saying Neom, like a bunch of, <laughs> Neom. Like a bunch of dorks. We? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Make them say it right. We'll let them in. <laughs> we'll think about it. <laughs> At the airport, there's just like, can you say, can you say Neom? <laughs> yes, are you, we can. Yeah. Or, and are you this tall? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You must pronounce Neom this way to enter. <laughs> uh, good one, Mr. Richard Wilson. Thank you very much to AZ and Mo for awesome. joining us. That was super cool. Thanks so much to everybody giving us comments and feedbacks and all the listeners out there in radio land. We appreciate you very much, Richard. See you next week. Next week. Always grateful. Always thankful. This is terrific. <laughs>